Zach, I want to introduce you to the Pranktitude scale. All right, enlighten me. Enlighten you. Well, you see... Zach, pranks, there's there's a wide medley, a wide array right. of pranks. Yeah. And so how I like to categorize them is by a scale that I just made up as you clicked play, yeah. basically. Oh, yeah. And so... This one is completely off the cuff today. List, listeners, just track with me. We've been... Right? Pro- it's Sunday. It's Sunday. Let night, loose. Night before. <laughs> the night before we have to put this out. Personally, I say this is when my best work comes out. Okay, let's hear it. So the Pranktitude scale is essentially x-axis, y-axis, think course. graph. Mm-hmm. So slope, intercept, yeah. Slope, intercept, y equals formula, mx, y, be, yeah. y equals mx. Yeah, I know algebra. Yeah. And uh, so on the x-axis is this – how like heinous is the prank? So how mean is it? How like psychologically does it damage the Does it go too far? Right. Yeah. Feelings, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Permanent damage. Yeah. (laughs) Whether that be – Physical or emotional. (laughs) Haircut or something like that. Yeah. Or emotionally, yeah. Or, and then the y-axis is how hard is this to clean up or to remedy? Mm, okay. And so those are kind of the two. Physically so, or emotionally there as well. Exactly. <laughs> so an example would be writing something on a whiteboard, like writing something really mean to someone on their mirror. Okay. Super easy to clean up. Could be pretty offensive. Could be pretty offensive. Depending on what you write or draw. What you write. So <laughs> yeah. that would be like not a great, it's not a good prank. Yeah, it's just like you wasted my time. Right. Yeah, I don't right. like that. And so you want to kind of... Have them match. You want right. the, you kind of want to find the middle. I don't, right. I don't, in general, I'd say don't do any obscene pranks. Let's of course, just go on, yeah, on we'll just say that. But you want to you want to balance your prank. Where this came from was a prank you pulled on my wife this morning. That's exactly right. It wasn't heinous, no, but essentially, Funny. you asked me to get her a bagel, right? And because you were giving I, out bangles at the student ministry, right? Right. Get her a bagel, right? Right. Bagels. You said bangles. <laughs> go Tigers. We love. <laughs> go Tigers. Go Tigers. Joe Burrow. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Uh, so I was putting a napkin around the bagel yes. and I was realizing I didn't have a napkin big enough. So I put two napkins and then I just weren't staying and I had a roll of duct tape. So I just of course, decided to naturally. wrap that puppy in duct tape. I mean, full over coverage. the, yeah, over the napkin. Yeah, yeah I didn't want to damage her bagel. By the time you brought this to the sanctuary, it didn't even look like a bagel. Yeah, anymore. it was like a, imagine like an exercise ball. I'm just, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Just a brick. Yeah, yeah. It was just, I mean, it was significantly wrapped in duct tape. And so Abby gets this and she has to now unwrap the duct tape after worship. Right, I made sure to give it to her after worship. When it's silent. Church. Exactly. Yes. So throughout church, you're just hearing... <laughs> Slight duct tape noises. And of course, you also hear shh from you and I. Because <laughs> yes. we're going to give her our time. Of course. Of course. But anyways, that's, I feel like, a good yeah. time. We're at church. There was no real damage caused. Yeah. Just some slight embarrassment. Pretty funny. funny. It's funny. I, I it's think a of a prank. lot. Jonathan Linder, we'll just apologize now. We love you. We love him, but we pranked him a lot. We did. One that comes to mind, tortillas in the shower. Just tillas, tossing. <laughs> tossing toss tillas, tillas over, right over the shower over curtain. The curtain. We just, he's in the shower ice. just uh, tossing some tillas. Yeah, that's Buckets right. of had, ice. We had tortillas, and it's like, you know when you're making tacos, yeah. and you need oh, seven, yeah. and you, give, you can only eat a 20-pack? Yeah. We'd use the extra one. You just toss the tillas. over into his... Speaking of Jonathan, he's calling. Anyway, we're tossing tillas. Right. Uh, another one, the black light. Yeah, we just we put a black light in there. Light bulb yeah. in their shower with a black light and hid their light bulb. They had it for like a week. I think I'll tell a story quickly. One of my best pranks. Freshman year. I'd agree. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Freshman year. Uh, Cooper. No, you weren't a part of this. I was not. Jonathan Keaton and I are it was just really feeling. We were friends. Yeah, it was before. Yeah. Wow. Crazy. Bitter times. Mm. Not better. 
Bitter. Uh, so before we were friends, we're feeling a little pranky in the middle of the night. Not cranky, pranky. Your pranktitude we're, tingles. Yes. yes we're, we're, ting, we're tingling. Yeah. And uh, so we, it was during finals week of our first semester. Everyone's studying. Everybody needs kind of a break or a place to study. Right. So we decide to put our graph design uh, skills to the test. We make this beautifully put out poster. And I'll test beautiful. Thank you. And it was telling everyone that Denny's was having free all-you-can-eat pancakes <laughs> if you show your DBUID and you study there and yeah. then you just get as many pancakes as you That's want. Right. And so we covertly go into the other guy's dorm. We have them all on the inside, James. And just 007, just slapping these all over the wall and just hiding in rooms as people walk by and then we'll put it on the wall. And so then in, in droves, trucks, cars, people are going to Denny's and we're not there. We didn't see what happened. But we, we, can imagine. we can imagine how Miss Joanne, the manager at Denny's at the time, we responded. We had some frequent we flyer did. miles built up at the old local Denny's. <laughs> at Denny's. Then we also saw the aftermath on Snapchat, Instagram stories of people ripping up our flyers. Being angry. And angry. Slight frustration. It was hilarious. It was Where fun. would you put that on the, the Pranktitude scale? I think it's good. I think it's easy to clean up. And it's like you put it in a dorm so you don't yeah. want to deface the dorm. Right. So I think I, but it was also not emotionally scarring. It was just, it was, it was harmless, but it was just the also, level of disappointment. I bet people bought pancakes. So it kind of helped. Probably Denny's. we honestly sponsor. <laughs> honestly, <laughs> honestly, we're, we're more of a house guys by now though. True. We've I love oh, the house. Anyway, when we are older, we would like to prank each other, uh, in a way of, when we're more financially stable. Right. Which is not now. Not now. We don't do this yet. Through sending Amazon packages to each other's addresses. Yeah, Zach and I have actually talked about this in the past. I don't remember where we heard it, but we either. heard some people. Nick Pitts. Nick Pitts. It was Nick actually, Pitts. Yeah. yeah. We actually have an interview. The, uh, the, the Swiss Army Knife to Leadership. Yeah. I think is what one of called. our first and one best. One of our first and probably still one of our best. But yeah, he was talking about how he just shipped stuff to his buddies. I love it. And we just, I'm like, you got to get a Bob Ross Chia Pet coming your way, Zach. <laughs> Just look out within the next 20 years whenever I get financially stable. Welcome to the Next Generation Leader Podcast, where we believe great leaders are listeners, especially during their youth. Good leaders learn from their successes and mistakes, but great leaders learn from the successes and mistakes of those who go before them. I'm your host, Zach Funderburg, here with my co-host, Cooper McCullough. How are we doing? The prankster, Zach, we're going to the moon. I would love to go to the moon. Speaking of the moon, what a great segue, Cooper. I know where this is going. This might be my favorite episode. Wow. I'm, that's uh, that's not what I expected you to say. <laughs> I say it every week, maybe, but this one, it's it's different, but so good. Hmm. We have Jim Bridenstine. He's the NASA administrator. Coop, we talked to the NASA administrator. Um, hello. That it, You may as well have just gone to the moon. I, I'm like, hey, Jim, I'm here. <laughs> You're just... I don't know how many G-force things Elon I can take. Talk to Elon. Can get a ride. Send me to the moon. Send I'm there. Fly me to the moon. <laughs> Thanks, Sinatra. Guys, anyway. I, I sang twice in this. You I did. The, the 007. Let us know if you want Coop to sing more or not. At your wedding? Yeah. He's Maybe. good. Anyway, we have Mr. Bridenstine on. Incredible interview. I'm like talking to him so much about the moon and about space that I forget to talk about leadership for a lot of it. That's and okay. so I'm like, hey, let's switch this if you around. you make it to the moon, you're a leader. <laughs> we, honestly. I'll, just, I'll say it. Yeah, thank you. You're welcome. So we talk a lot about the moon, why we want to go to the moon, why we're going back. And he tells us it's to go to Mars, to take dun, off dun, dun. from the moon to go to Mars. That's it's, crazy. I mean, he's telling me things I've never heard about NASA, about moon, space Would travel. You say classified information? I mean, maybe. 
Maybe. Uh, you're going to have to listen to figure gonna it out. You're going to have to listen. You're going to have to see. But we also talk about human progress and curiosity because yeah. I think it's so important for leaders to always be curious about whatever field you're in, but also the people that you're leading, asking questions, wondering. The curious le- people always ask questions and want to know more if you want to grow. And yeah. I think that's a big part of why we do this podcast is that we don't have all the answers. We don't know what's out in space. We don't know how to lead because we're young. We're young. And we're young. But we want to know. So we're going to be curious and ask questions right. along the way. So. I mean, this is a fascinating, fascinating interview. And I'm, I'm excited. So, I'm so excited to share this one. Yeah. Well, uh, buckle up, strap in. <laughs> strap in. Keep Get your, your oxygen. Inside the yes. spaceship at all times. Please. And without further ado, here he is, the NASA administrator. Let's Mr. blast off. Mr. Jim Bridenstein. Well, Jim, thank you so much for being here and taking time out of your busy schedule to answer some questions for us. I want to just start by letting you introduce yourself. Kind of who are you? How do you get to NASA? And what's your, what's your path to get where you are today? Uh, you bet. So uh, my name is Jim Bridenstine. I am the NASA administrator. Um, yeah, I'll tell you, um, if you would have told me when I was 10 years old that I was going to be running the world's preeminent space exploration agency, I, I probably would not have believed you, but it's, uh, it's an honor to be here. You know, I, I, was, I was always, um, you know, really interested in aviation growing up. I wanted to be a pilot my whole life. Uh, in first grade, they, they asked you to draw a picture of what you wanted to be when you grew up. I drew a picture of a pilot um, with an airplane, uh, and I, I spelled it, I, I said, I want to be a pilot, and I spelled it P-I-E, L-E-O-T. So I couldn't even spell it, but I knew that I wanted to be it. Um, and, and so that kind of stuck with me my, my whole life, you know, life growing up. Uh, I went to Rice University for college. And when I graduated, um, I really had this strong desire to become a military pilot. And so I joined the United States Navy, um, started flying uh, you know, in, the, in the Navy, did that for nine years on active duty. Mm. Um, and then, uh, when I left the Navy, I went to Cornell university to get an MBA. Uh, and then during all of this time, my wife's, um, mother got multiple sclerosis. Her dad, um, had passed away. Um, and so we needed to move back home, which was Tulsa. Right. So we, we moved back to Tulsa, Oklahoma. Uh, I ran a nonprofit air and space museum. Um, it just got us, it got us back home and it was a wonderful opportunity to see how education can really change the direction of, of young people, especially, you know, early in their lives. Um, and then I, I, I ran for the United States House of Representatives, uh, served in Congress for really five and a half years. Mm. And, and during that time, I was, uh, as a military pilot, I wanted to be on the Armed Services Committee. I was on the Strategic Forces Subcommittee, which deals with all of our national security space capabilities. Right. So I was dealing with space, national security space, a lot. But I was also on the science committee. And the, the science committee has two subcommittees that, that I was on. One was the space subcommittee, which oversees NASA. And the other one was the, uh, the environment subcommittee, which oversees NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. Hmm. And about 40% of NOAA's budget is space-related activities as well. So between national security space and um, and civil space, NASA and NOAA specifically, uh, I was dealing with space as a member of the House almost exclusively. Right. And and you know I got frustrated because a lot of the things that I was dealing with on all these committees 
were different agencies that were dealing with all the same challenges, but they weren't working together to resolve them. Mm. So I, I, I created a, a very comprehensive space reform bill called the American Space Renaissance Act. We introduced it in the House, and it got lots of attention from yeah. the, the, the national and international space communities. And it kind of put me as a leader on, on space-related issues. Um, I kind of became the go-to guy in the house when it came to, to space activities. Right. So, um, so that, that was kind of the, and I, I started speaking all over the country at space conferences and symposiums and, uh, you know, did all those kind of things. And um, when President Trump became president, he, uh, he sent an email to all the senators asking them who they thought should serve in these various uh, positions. Uh, and my name came up in two different positions. One was Secretary of the Air Force, because at the time, the Air Force was responsible for all of our national security space capabilities. Right. Not, not all of them, but the preponderance of them. Right. Um, and, and the other one that I was listed for was the uh, NASA administrator. Um, so we went through a, a process. I interviewed for both positions and then, um, you know, they, they selected me to be the NASA administrator. And I, I will tell you, um, it, it's been, it's been the honor of a lifetime. Yeah. It's the, 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 the best job I've ever had, mm-hmm. the most challenging job I've ever had. Um, but, but I'm thrilled to be where I am. And, um, and I'm, I'm grateful to, to President Trump for giving me this amazing opportunity. Well, that's incredible. And every kid grows up dreaming of being an astronaut and going to space. But it's also neat seeing how you start an undergrad at Rice, same place that President Kennedy gives his his famous go to the moon speech. Yeah. And now from the research I've done, we're going back to the moon. NASA's wanting to go back with, I guess, the partnership of SpaceX as well, going on the Artemis program. So can you kind of give us a, some insight into what the Artemis program is and, and what we're doing there? Absolutely. So in the president's space policy directive one, he says, we're going to go back to the moon sustainably. In other words, we're going to stay at the moon. We're going to learn how to live and work on the moon for long periods of time using the resources of the moon. We're we're going to go with commercial partners. You mentioned SpaceX, but there's a lot of other commercial partners as well. And we're going to go with international partners. We're going to, when we learn how to live and work on another world using the resources of that world, we're going to take all of that knowledge and we're going we're gonna to take that to Mars. The goal is to get to Mars. Moon, the moon is the proving ground. Mars is the destination. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of reasons to go back to the moon and a lot of reasons to go to Mars. And I'm happy to go through those if you're interested. Yeah, I think just a brief, what, how, what does it look like to sustainably be on the moon, to live there, to kind of populate it and then go to Mars? Kind of a brief synopsis of that. Yeah, so the idea is we found uh, about 10 years ago, we found hundreds of millions of tons of water ice on the South Pole of the Moon. Okay. Water ice represents air to breathe and water to drink. That's, of course, the oxygen piece of H2O. Right. Um, I should say the air to breathe is the oxygen piece. But, but H2O in itself is water to drink, and the hydrogen is, is, is rocket fuel. And it's available in hundreds of millions of tons on the South Pole of the Moon. The space shuttles were powered with hydrogen. The SLS rocket that is going to take our astronauts to the moon here um, in just a few short years, that is powered with hydrogen fuel. So these are are capabilities. Once we learn that the moon is covered with hydrogen, let's let's go get it. Let's use it. Um, Let's use the the oxygen for life support. 
um, and sustain life on another world for long periods of time using the resources of that world. As far as science goes, um, there's so much value to the moon from a science perspective. Remember, in the 1960s, all the way up until really um, 2009, right. we believed that the moon was bone dry. Now we know that there's hundreds of millions of tons of water ice, but there's a lot more we don't yet know. Mm. Um, and we can use the moon. The regolith of the moon, the soil of the moon, um, represents a lot of data and information from the early solar system. So when we think about the Earth. The Earth doesn't give us a lot of information about the early solar system because the Earth has a very active you know, atmosphere, an active hydrosphere. The Earth has a magnetosphere so that charged particles, subatomic charged particles coming from the sun actually go around the Earth. They never come in contact with the Earth. Asteroids get burned up in the Earth's atmosphere. So there's, we don't have a lot of information about the early solar system from the Earth. But the moon has no active geology. It has no active atmosphere. It has no active hydrosphere. Anything that impacted the moon billions of years ago is today right where it was billions of years ago. And that includes both asteroids and subatomic charged particles from the sun. So we can really get a, a good idea of what the early solar system was like by going to the moon and studying the regolith but, but, and, and, and the asteroid impacts. When right. we're talking about right. those, we talk about rare earth metals on earth. Those are not earth metals at all. Rare earth metals are asteroid impacts from, in some cases, billions of years ago. And all of that, and the, the, we're talking about platinum group metals. And when we find it, because of our active geology and hydrosphere, it's in very trace amounts. But on the moon, we could find large deposits of platinum group metals that could be worth tens of trillions of dollars. Right. I'm not saying it's there. I don't know. But if somebody discovers it that isn't the United States, that could change the balance of power on Earth. Really so do. we need to make sure that, that we're leading in this area. But, but when we think about the far side of the moon, it's very quiet from an electromagnetic spectrum perspective which means we're going to be able to see deeper into the universe than we've ever been able to see before. Um, and by looking deeper into the universe, you're actually looking back into time because the universe is constantly expanding. Um, and so, so I think that we're, going to learn, we're going to learn a lot by going to the moon about astrophysics, about the, our sun through heliophysics, about our solar system. Mm. Um, and, and so it's, a, it's an exciting time to be at NASA. Now, we go to the moon for a purpose, which is to get to Mars. Right. Let's talk about Mars. That's exciting stuff. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, Mars, in the last couple of years, we, we have found complex organic compounds all over the surface of Mars. So, th those are the building blocks for life. It's not life, but it's the building blocks for life. And they don't exist on the moon at all. They're all over the Earth, and they're all over Mars. So, there's something here that's unique that the moon doesn't have. So, so when we think about those building blocks for life, and then we add to it the fact that just a couple of years ago, we found liquid water 12 kilometers under the surface of Mars. That liquid water, what do we know about liquid water on Earth? Wherever there's liquid water, there's life. Right. Is that, is that true on Mars? I mean, I don't know. I don't think anybody else knows. But certainly we should, we should go find out. Um, then we think about methane cycles. When methane cycles match the seasons of any planetary body, it's an indicator that it could be, there could be life there. And we're finding that the methane cycles on Mars match the seasons of Mars. It's not a guarantee of life. It could be geological in nature. 
but the probability keeps going up. And I, and I think it's important that as, as we think about who we are as explorers and discoverers, we need to be pushing the boundary and making these, if there are discoveries to be had, we need to be making those discoveries and, and taking with us a coalition of international partners. So the, the other thing that's important, going back in, in you know, just a few decades, Spirit and Opportunity were rovers that were on Mars um, in the early 2000s, from the early 2000s up until, you know, just recently. Right. Um, I said mid to that, like 2005, I think is when they, when they landed. Um, but Spirit and Opportunity demonstrated to us that the, the Mars was covered, the Northern Hemisphere of Mars was covered in a liquid ocean. Mm. Um, Two thirds of it was covered in a liquid ocean. The, the, that there was a strong magnetosphere that protected Mars from the radiation of deep space and that Mars had a thick atmosphere. In other words, Mars was at one time very much like Earth. It was habitable. Was it inhabited? We don't know, but we're going to go find out. Right. And right now we're sending Perseverance, which is a robot, to Mars. It will be the ninth time in human history that we've landed softly on Mars with a robot. Um, and the United States is the only country that's ever been able to do it. And this time we're going with an astrobiology robot. This robot is designed to help us understand if life ever existed on Mars or maybe even if life exists there today. Now, I'm not, Zach, you know this, I'm not talking about bunny rabbits. I'm not talking about, I'm, ta- yeah. I'm talking about maybe, maybe we can find some microbial life like right. bacteria or something like that. So, so these are just some of the big ticket items that we're working on day in and day out at NASA. Well, I mean, if you were happen to find a, a rabbit on Mars, that would be quite a remarkable discovery as well. <laughs> but I think there's something to say there that NASA is on the forefront of human progress and, and human flourishing. And there is space out there. There is billions and billions of miles of, of uncharted waters that we want to be leaders at. We want to go and we want to find and, and why not discover it? Why not go and why not uh, bring back information? So kind of talk about that. What is What role does space play in, in human progress? Why oh. We, why do we discover? Why do we venture out that far? Why go to the moon? Why go to Mars? Yeah. Talk about human so, progress. Yeah, Zach, that's so important. And I appreciate you asking the question. Um, you know, right now I'm talking to you using a camera in a computer. Right. And that camera was built for a mission that went to Mars. In fact, you know, we talked about spirit and opportunity. This, the, the, we built those cameras because we needed an extremely small, very lightweight a camera that could that could serve a robotic function on Mars, mm. and then Nokia, back in I think in the late '90s, Nokia licensed it from NASA and put it into a cell phone. And then that, now you see cameras in cell phones; it's just a regular part of everyday life. Right. Um, that's one example. But you know, people are going to watch this. It's a podcast. If you're in rural Oklahoma or in rural Texas. Um, there's a lot of people that don't have internet if they don't get internet broadband from space. So that's a space-based communications capability that was born from this little agency called NASA. But it's not just internet broadband from space. It's, it's things like direct TV, dish network, XM radio. So basically how we communicate over the horizon um, using space-based capabilities has been transformational for all of life on Earth. And it was born from, from NASA. Um, but it's not just communication. We think about how we navigate with GPS. We think about how we produce food. We're, we're reducing water usage and increasing crop yields, preserving nitrates in the soil, 
to, to get higher crop yields with less water, mm. feeding more of the world than ever before, how we produce food, how we produce energy cleanly, um, how we, how we you know, predict weather with weather satellites. A lot of people don't realize NASA builds all of the weather satellites that are operated by NOAA. Um, so, and then how we understand climate and how we do disaster relief and how, you know, obviously right now there's a hurricane bearing down um, about to hit Louisiana and Mississippi yet again. Again, yeah. Um, and so NASA technology is up there giving us the tools necessary to make predictions so that we can evacu evacuate the right people and even more importantly, not evacuate the wrong people because right. evacuations cost the economy billions and billions of dollars. Mm -hmm. So so NASA technology is at work every day um, and, and it, it has definitely improved human life here on Earth uh, to the point where we think about, you know, uh, if you're if you're look if you're watching this on a terrestrial wireless capability like a cell phone, right? Um, all of the data that flows on a terrestrial wireless network is dependent on a timing signal from GPS. Mm. If we don't have GPS, we don't have terrestrial wireless networks. And same with the electricity on the power grid. No GPS, no power grid, no electricity at all. Right. I, it's it's space is now fundamental to our lives in a way that most people don't realize. And it, and it has improved the human condition more than, more than the less than one half of 1% of the federal budget that we get on an annual basis. Mm. So it's, um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a pretty remarkable capability that NASA has, has been able to deliver, not just on behalf of the American people, but in fact, on behalf of the world. Right. And you even mentioned that talking about the world, it benefits the whole world if America leads out and we go to space. And you mentioned it, we're going to have commercial partners, but also international partners. But if we remember back in why, say, Kennedy wanted to go to the moon was to beat the, the Soviets there. And it was kind of the space race of the 60s. But now when we're going back with the sister program, we want to go with international partners. So what does that look like? What, is, what do those international partnerships or even commercial partnerships look like? Yeah, so that's that's a, again, uh, it's a very distinct kind of difference between where we were in the 1960s, where it was a great power competition. It was the United States against the Soviet Union. We were trying to demonstrate our technological prowess that our political and economic system was superior to that of, you know, communism, um, and and it was successful. We 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 won the space race when Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin landed on the moon. Today, in fact, it's very different. We are partnering with international partners in, in collaboration. It is, it is now an amazing tool of diplomacy right. for the United States of America. After, after Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin landed on the moon, and then we did five additional moon landings for a total of six, 12 people walking on the moon. After all of that, Russia, I should say the Soviet Union, came to the table and partnered with the United States on what was called the Apollo Soyuz program. So everybody realized at that point, let's let's work together. And that that partnership carried forward with the Space Shuttle Mir program and now the International Space Station program, which we have 15 different countries operating. We've had astronauts from 19 different countries mm. and um experiments from 103 different countries. So it's gone from this great power competition to now this collaborative effort where we can all do more when we work together. And I think that represents a, a kind of a symbol of hope uh, for, for our country and for the world. 
Yeah. And it's important for us to be, be leading in that and being able to bring people in. But I just, I thought about this. If we start to sustainably stay on the moon and we go with international partners, do you ever see that power struggle coming back into picture of say the ownership of the moon, who's in control and, and, and what would that look like? So there is a risk of that. I will tell you that in 1967, all of the spacefaring nations, which at the time there were two, (laughs) Soviet Union and the United States, we signed signed a treaty uh, that said that you cannot appropriate the moon for national sovereignty. Mm. So, and and we are signatory, now every nation, I don't know how many nations, but over a hundred nations have signed on to the, what's called the Outer Space Treaty. but it is important that just because you can't appropriate the moon for national sovereignty does not mean that you can't own the resources that you extract from the moon, whether those resources are the water ice for hydrogen fuel or for oxygen to breathe and, and water to drink, or whether those resources could potentially be platinum group metals. So I think the model here that we need to use is the same model that we have over international waters. So just because you go fishing does not mean, you, you know, you, you can pull a bunch of tuna out of the ocean, but that doesn't mean that you own the ocean. Right. And just because you pull, you know, oil or natural gas out of the ocean, that doesn't mean that you own the ocean. So, so the international waters are, I think, a great analogy to where we should go on the moon. Just because you extract you know, precious metals from the moon or you extract water ice from the moon doesn't mean that you have appropriated the moon for national sovereignty. I think the model exists. There's a lot of law and precedent behind it. And I think that, you know, what we're doing with the Artemis program, um, we're, we're, we are encouraging, in fact, we're requiring anybody who wants to be with us on the moon, they have to agree to basic principles, norms of behavior. And one of those principles is that if you apply your sweat and your equity and your energy to extracting a resource from the moon, guess what? You get to own that resource. And, and, and all of the rights and privileges that come from that owning that resource, you get. Mm. Yeah, so there's a huge economic upside to this as well once we get there. And gosh, we could talk about the moon and space and the space race all day, but this is a leadership po- pro- uh, podcast. I got to get back to sure. the roots. Curiosity is a huge part of human progress and a huge part of us wanting to go and go further, but it's also a huge part of leadership. I think it's so important for leaders to be curious and curious in what you're doing, curious in the people you're leading. So, kind of, what's your take on curiosity? Why is it important and why is it important and how does that fit into leadership and then also the space race. Yeah, so I, I do think that there are some some good lessons to be learned from that question. Um, when we think about uh, what makes a leader a leader, um, uh, one of the first things that comes to mind for me is the fact that leaders generally have knowledge, mm. uh, and, that, and that knowledge makes them an expert. So when I was in the House of Representatives, and I was working on, you know, national security space and, and NASA and uh, NOAA and all of these different functions that, that deal with space, the FAA, the Office of Commercial Space Transportation, you're familiar with all of the commercial activities happening in space. Um, so so when, I was, when I was working on these issues, uh, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of things that, um, that, that, that you have to know. Um, for example, you know, people need to understand you know, s- spread spectrum or frequency hopping for anti-jam capabilities or encryption. Um, you know, kind of the, the the orbital dynamics of 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 different capabilities that 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 you need in space. 
And, and so studying that and preparing for it, um, kind of, it, it, it made me an expert. And being that expert is what gives you kind of a leadership role, whether you ask for it or not. Mm. Um, and so I think your question about curiosity is very relevant to the, the acquiring of knowledge that is necessary to, to be a leader in a, in a given situation. Um, you know, there's, a, you know, a, an axiom that I have long believed in, and I've heard it throughout my lifetime. It's that readers are leaders. Mm. Um, when you read, it, it puts you in a position to lead uh, because it prepares you to be that expert when the time comes. Right. Now, if, if you're asking me to be an expert on, for example, the National Hockey League, I'm not going to, I'm not going to be an expert there. It's, it's, right. uh, you know, but, but the question is, I don't need to be, there are other experts in that area and they're, and they're spending their time and their resources and reading and preparing to be an expert in that domain. But if, if you want to lead in any domain, I would encourage people um, to become the expert in that domain. And you do that by reading and preparing. Um, and it's got to be a lifelong process. Right. Um, you know, getting a degree from Dallas Baptist University is fantastic, but that's just the beginning. Right. You've got to make sure that you sustain that, that, that desire to learn um, throughout your entire lifetime. I think that's huge. And we can learn so much from that quickly. Any books that you would recommend readers are, are leaders are readers. What books would you recommend for young leaders right now? So I'm, uh, there's a number of them. Um, right. I, I'll tell you right now, um, I'm, I'm reading uh, a book by Michael Hayden. Um, and he was uh, the director of, of, of um, the, he was the, the CIA director uh, right. and he was the national security advisor. Uh, the director of the National Security Agency, I should say, not the National Security Advisor. Um, and, you know, the, the reason I picked up his book is because he had to lead his two agencies through some very, very difficult times immediately following 9-11 mm. um, and, and, you know, the, what ended up being some of the, mo the most challenging wars. And, and, of course, I was involved in those wars as a Absolutely. Navy pilot back in the day. Um, so... I, I, that's just the one I'm reading right now. And so it comes to mind, but I will say read biographies, mm. read about people who have done things in challenging times and what they did to be successful. I think biographies are, are, are critically important and especially right. biographies, biographies of people that are involved in something you, you might be interested in. Mm, yeah, that's fascinating. I think biographies are so important and you can learn so much from what people say or what they've done. You can experience what they experienced before you face it yourself. Well, Jim, one last question we love asking all our leaders is what advice would you give to your 20 year old self? Looking back not too long ago, what would you say to your 20 year old self? Yeah, I think the, the big thing I would tell myself, um, and, and, um, I think I've been fairly successful in adhering to it throughout these years is, um, is focus on what in the military they call it sustained superior performance. Mm. The question is, you know, a lot of a lot of young people are competitive and they want to get ahead, and they want to they want to you know present themselves as better than their peers and those kind of things. But I, I would say the the key is just look know what your focus is, where you are at that time, and be the absolute best that you can be in that area. Mm. Um, and, and sustain that throughout, you know, however many years you're going to be doing that sustained superior performance. Um, 
don't, don't worry about the politics. I will tell you, I, I was in politics. I was in the House of Representatives. So I, I know a little bit about politics. Right. But in any organization, there's always politics. You can't worry about it. What you've got to focus on in the organization where you are is what is your job and how do you do it to the absolute best of your ability um, and, and just focus on that sustained superior performance. And I think the end result will be very, very good. Mm, well, I think that's so important. Sustained superior, superior performance over a long period of time. Jim, thank you so much for your time. This has been so beneficial and, and go NASA. <laughs> thank you so much, Zach. Appreciate you very much. 